When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 14. Investigation proved that the friends Angela had gone to spend the day with were some stately homeowners of the name of Stretchley Bud hanging out in a joint called Kingham Manor, about eight miles distant in the direction of Persher. I didn't know these birds, but their fascination must have been considerable, for she tore herself away from them only just in time to get back and dress for dinner. It was, accordingly, not until coffee had been consumed that I was able to get matters moving. I found her in the drawing-room, and at once proceeded to put things in train. It was with very different feelings from those which had animated the bosom when approaching the Basset twenty-four hours before in the same manner in this same drawing-room that I headed for where she sat. As I had told Tuppy, I had always been devoted to Angela, and there is nothing I like better than a ramble in her company, and I could see by the look of her now how sorely in need she was of my aid and comfort. Frankly, I was shocked by the unfortunate young prune's appearance. At Cannes she had been a happy, smiling English girl of the best type, full of beans and buck. Her face now was pale and drawn, like that of a hockey center forward at a girls' school who, in addition to getting a fruity one on the shin, had just been penalized for sticks. In any normal gathering her demeanor would have excited instant remark but the standard of gloom at Brinkley Court had become so high that it passed unnoticed. Indeed, I shouldn't wonder if Uncle Tom, crouched in his corner waiting for the end, didn't think she was looking indecently cheerful. I got down to the agenda in my debonair way. "'What ho, Angela, old girl?' "'Hello, Bertie, darling.' "'Glad you're back at last. I missed you.' "'Did you, darling?' "'I did, indeed.' care to come for a saunter? I'd love it. Fine. I have much to say to you that is not for the public ear. I think at this moment poor old Tuppy must have got a sudden touch of cramp. He had been sitting hard by, staring at the ceiling, and he now gave a sharp leap like a gaffed salmon and upset a small table containing a vase, a bowl of potpourri, two china dogs, and a copy of Omar Khayyam bound in limp leather. Aunt Dahlia uttered a startled hunting cry. Uncle Tom, who probably imagined from the noise that this was civilization crashing at last, helped things along by breaking a coffee-cup. Tuppy said he was sorry. Aunt Dahlia, with a deathbed groan, said it didn't matter. And Angela, having stared haughtily for a moment like a princess of the old regime, confronted by some notable example of gaucherie on the part of some particularly foul member of the underworld, accompanied me across the threshold and presently I had deposited her and self on one of the rustic benches in the garden, and was ready to snap into the business of the evening. I considered it best, however, before doing so, to ease things along with a little informal chit-chat. You don't want to rush a delicate job like the one I had in hand. And so for a while we spoke of neutral topics. She said that what had kept her so long at the stretchly buds was that Hilda Stretchley Bud had made her stop on and help with the arrangements for her servant's ball tomorrow night, a task which she couldn't very well decline, as all the Brinkley Court domestic staff were to be present. 
I said that a jolly night's revelry might be just what was needed to cheer Anatole up and take his mind off things, to which she replied that Anatole wasn't going. On being urged to do so by Aunt Dahlia, she said, he had merely shaken his head sadly and gone on talking of returning to Provence, where he was appreciated. It was after the somber silence induced by this statement that Angela said that the grass was wet and she thought she would go in. This, of course, was entirely foreign to my policy. "'No, don't do that. I haven't had a chance to talk to you since you arrived. I shall ruin my shoes. Put your feet up on my lap. All right, and you can tickle my ankles.' "'Quite.' Matters were accordingly arranged on these lines, and for some minutes we continued chatting in desultory fashion. Then the conversation petered out. I made a few observations, in ray, the scenic effects, featuring the twilight hush, the peeping stars, and the soft glimmer of the waters of the lake, and she said yes. Something rustled in the bushes in front of us, and I advanced the theory that it was possibly a weasel, and she said it might be, but it was plain that the girl was distraught, and I considered it best to waste no more time. "'Well, old thing,' I said, "'I've heard all about your little dust-up. So those wedding bells are not going to ring out, what? No. Definitely over, is it? Yes. Well, if you want my opinion, I think that's a bit of goose for you, Angela, old girl. I think you're extremely well out of it. It's a mystery to me how you stood this glossop so long. Take him for all in all, he ranks very low down among the wines and spirits. A washout, I should describe him as. A frightful oik and a massive side to boot. I'd pity the girl who was linked for life to a bargee like Tuppy Glossop, and I admitted a hard laugh, one of the sneering kind. "'I always thought you were such friends,' said Angela. I let go another hard one, with a bit more topspin on it than the first time. "'Friends? Absolutely not. One was civil, of course, when one met the fellow, but it would be absurd to say one was a friend of his.' a club acquaintance, and a mere one at that, and then one was at school with the man. At Eton? Good heavens, no! We wouldn't have a fellow like that at Eton. At a kid's school before I went there, a grubby little brute he was, I recollect, covered with ink and mire generally, washing only on alternate Thursdays. In short, a notable outsider shunned by all. I paused. I was more than a bit perturbed. Apart from the agony of having to talk in this fashion of one who, except when he was looping back rings and causing me to plunge into swimming baths in correct evening costume, had always been a very dear and esteemed crony, I didn't seem to be getting anywhere. Business was not resulting. Staring into the bushes without a yip, she appeared to be bearing these slurs and innuendos of mine with an easy calm. I had another pop at it. Uncouth about sums it up. I doubt if I've ever seen an uncouther kid than this glossop. Ask anyone who knew him in those days to describe him in a word, and the word they would use is uncouth. And he's just the same today. It's the old story. The boy is the father of the man. She appeared not to have heard. The boy, I repeated, not wishing her to miss that one, is the father of the man. What are you talking about? I'm talking about this glossop. I thought you said something about somebody's father. I said the boy was the father of the man. What boy? The boy Glossop. He hasn't got a father. I never said he had. I said he was the father of the boy, or rather of the man. What man? I saw that the conversation had reached a point where, unless care was taken, we should be muddled. The point I am trying to make, I said, is that the boy glossop is the father of the man glossop. In other words, each loathsome fault and blemish that led the boy glossop to be frowned upon by his fellows is present in the man glossop, and causes him, I am speaking now of the man glossop, to be a hissing and a byword at places like the drones, where a certain standard of decency is demanded from the inmates. Ask anyone at the drones, and they will tell you that it was a black day for the dear old club when this chap glossop somehow wriggled into the list of members. Here you will find a man who dislikes his face. 
They're one who could stand his face if it wasn't for his habits. But the universal consensus of opinion is that the fellow is a bounder and a tick, and that the moment he showed signs of wanting to get into the place he should have been met with a firm nulle persique and heartily blackballed. I had to pause again here, partly in order to take in a spot of breath, and partly to wrestle with the almost physical torture of saying these frightful things about poor old Tuppy. There are some chaps, I resumed, forcing myself once more to the nauseous task, who, in spite of looking as if they had slept in their clothes, can get by quite nicely because they are amiable and suave. There are others who, for all that they excite adverse comment by being fat and uncouth, find themselves on the credit side of the ledger, owing to their wit and sparkling humor. But this glossop, I regret to say, falls into neither class. In addition to looking like one of those things that come out of hollow trees, he is universally admitted to be a dumb brick of the first water. No so, no conversation. In short, any girl who, having been rash enough to get engaged to him, has managed at the eleventh hour to slide out, is justly entitled to consider herself dashed lucky. I paused once more, and cocked an eye at Angela to see how the treatment was taking. All the while I had been speaking, she had sat gazing silently into the bushes, but it seemed to me incredible that she should not now turn on me like a tigress, according to specifications. It beat me why she hadn't done it already. It seemed to me that a mere tithe of what I had said, if said to a tigress about a tiger of which she was fond, would have made her, the tigress I mean, hit the ceiling, and the next moment you could have knocked me down with a toothpick. Yes, she said, nodding thoughtfully, you're quite right. Eh? That's exactly what I've been thinking myself. What? Dumb brick. It just describes him. One of the six silliest asses in England, I think he must be. I did not speak. I was endeavoring to adjust the faculties, which were in urgent need of a bit of first-aid treatment. I mean to say, all of this had come as a complete surprise. In formulating the well-laid plan which I had just been putting into effect, the one contingency I had not budgeted for was that she might adhere to the sentiments which I expressed. I had braced myself for a gush of stormy emotion. I was expecting that tearful ticking off, the girlish recriminations and all the rest of the bag of tricks along those lines. But this cordial agreement with my remarks I had not foreseen, and it gave me what you might call pause for thought. She proceeded to develop her theme, speaking in ringing, enthusiastic tones, as if she loved the topic. Jeeves could tell you the word I want. I think it's ecstatic, unless that's the sort of rash you get on your face and have to use ointment for. But if that's the right word, then that's what her manner was as she ventilated the subject of poor old Tuppy. If you had been able to go simply by the sound of her voice, she might have been a court poet cutting loose about an oriental monarch or Gussie Feignottle describing his last consignment of newts. It's so nice, Bertie, talking to someone who really takes a sensible view about this man Glossop. Mother says he's a good chap, which is simply absurd. Anybody can see that he's absolutely impossible. He's conceited and opinionative and argues all the time, even when he knows perfectly well that he's talking through his hat. And he smokes too much and eats too much and drinks too much, and I don't like the color of his hair. Not that he'll have any hair in a year or two, because he's pretty thin on top already, and before he knows where he is he'll be as bald as an egg, and he's the last man who can afford to go bald. And I think it's simply disgusting the way he gorges all the time. Do you know I found him in the larder at one o'clock in the morning, absolutely wallowing in a steak and kidney pie? There was hardly any of it left. And you remember what an enormous dinner he had. Quite disgusting, I call it. But I can't stop out here all night, talking about men who aren't worth wasting a word on, and haven't even enough sense to tell sharks from flatfish. I'm going in. And, gathering about her slim shoulders the shawl which she had put on as a protection against the evening dew, she buzzed off, leaving me alone in the silent night. Well, as a matter of fact, not absolutely alone, because a few minutes later there was a sort of upheaval in the bushes in front of me, and Tuppy emerged. End of chapter 14
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 15. I gave him the eye. The evening had begun to draw in a bit by now, and the visibility, in consequence, was not so hot, but there still remained ample light to enable me to see him clearly, and what I saw convinced me that I should be a lot easier in my mind with a stout rustic bench between us. I rose, accordingly, modeling my style on that of a rocketing pheasant, and proceeded to deposit myself on the other side of the object named. My prompt agility was not without its effect. He seemed somewhat taken aback. He came to a halt, and, for about the space of time required to allow a bead of persp to trickle from the top of the brow to the tip of the nose, stood gazing at me in silence. "'So,' he said at length, and it came as a complete surprise to me that fellows ever really do say so. I had always thought it was just a thing you read in books, like quota, I mean to say, or odds bodikins, or even e bagum. Still, there it was. Quaint or not quaint, bizarre or not bizarre, he had said so, and it was up to me to cope with the situation on those lines. It would have been a duller man than Bertram Wooster who had failed to note that the dear old chap was a bit steamed up. Whether his eyes were actually shooting forth flame I couldn't tell you, but there appeared to me to be a distinct incandescence. For the rest, his fists were clenched, his ears quivering, and the muscles of his jaw rotating rhythmically, as if he were making an early supper off something. His hair was full of twigs, and there was a beetle hanging to the side of his head, which would have interested Gussie Finknottle. To this, however, I paid scant attention. There is a time for studying beetles, and a time for not studying beetles. "'So,' he said again. "'Now those who know Bertram Wooster will best tell you that he is always at his shrewdest and most level-headed in moments of peril. Who was it who, when gripped by the arm of the law on boat-race night not so many years ago, and hauled off to Vine Street Police Station, assumed in a flash the identity of Eustace H. Plimsoll of the Laburnums, Allen Road, West Dulwich, thus saving the grand old name of Wooster from being dragged in the mire and avoiding wide publicity of the wrong sort? Who was it? But I need not labor the point. My record speaks for itself. Three times pinched, but never once sentenced under the correct label. Ask anyone at the drones about this. So now, in a situation threatening to become every moment more scaly, I did not lose my head. I preserved the old sang Freud smiling a genial and affectionate smile, and hoping that it wasn't too dark for it to register. I spoke with a jolly cordiality. "'Why, hello, Tuppy. You here?' He said, yes, he was here. "'Been here long?' "'I have.' "'Fine. I wanted to see you.' "'Well, here I am. Come out from behind that bench.' "'No thanks, old man. I like leaning on it. It seems to rest the spine.' In about two seconds, said Tuppy, I'm going to kick your spine up through the top of your head. I raised the eyebrows. Not much good, of course, in that light, but it seemed to help the general composition. Is this Hildebrand Glossop speaking, I said? He replied that it was, adding that if I wanted to make sure, I might move a few feet over in his direction. He also called me an opprobrious name. I raised the eyebrows again. "'Come, come, Tuppy, don't let this little chat become acrid. Is acrid the word I want?' "'I couldn't say,' he replied, beginning to sidle round the bench. I saw that anything I might wish to say must be said quickly. Already he had sidled some six feet, and though, by dint of sidling too, I had managed to keep the bench between us, who could predict how long this happy state of affairs would last?' I came to the point, therefore. "'I think I know what's on your mind, Tuppy,' I said. "'If you were in those bushes during my conversation with the recent Angela, 
I dare say you heard what I was saying about you. I did. I see. Well, we won't go into the ethics of the thing. Eavesdropping, some people might call it, and I can imagine stern critics drawing in the breath to some extent. Considering it, I don't want to hurt your feelings, Tuppy, but considering it un-English. A bit un-English, Tuppy, old man, you must admit. I'm Scotch. Really? I said. I never knew that before. Rummy how you don't suspect a man of being Scotch, unless he's Mac something, and says, Och, ay, and things like that. I wonder, I went on, feeling that an academic discussion on some neutral topic might ease the tension, if you can tell me something that has puzzled me a good deal. What exactly is that stuff they put in Haggis? I've often wondered about that. From the fact that his only response to the question was to leap over the bench and make a grab at me, I gathered that his mind was not on haggis. However, I said, leaping over the bench in my turn, that is a side issue. If, to come back to it, you were in those bushes and heard what I was saying about you, he began to move round the bench in a nor-nor-easterly direction. I followed his example, setting a course south-south-west. No doubt you are surprised at the way I was talking. Not a bit. What? Did nothing strike you as odd in the tone of my remarks? It was just the sort of stuff I would have expected a treacherous, sneaking hound like you to say. My dear chap, I protested, this is not your usual form. A bit slow in the uptake, surely? I should have thought you would have spotted right away that it was all part of a well-laid plan. I'll get you in a jiffy, said Tuppy, recovering his balance after a swift clutch at my neck. And so probable did this seem that I delayed no longer, but hastened to place all the facts before him. Speaking rapidly and keeping moving, I related my emotions on receipt of Aunt Dahlia's telegram, my instant rush to the scene of the disaster, my meditations in the car, and the eventual framing of this well-laid plan of mine. I spoke clearly and well, and it was with considerable concern, consequently, that I heard him observe, between clenched teeth which made it worse, that he didn't believe a damned word of it. "'But, Tuppy,' I said, "'why not? To me the thing rings two to the last drop. What makes you sceptical? Confide in me, Tuppy.' He halted and stood taking a breather. "'Tuppy,' pungently, though Angela might have argued to the contrary, isn't really fat. During the winter months you will find him constantly booting the football with merry shouts, and in the summer the tennis racket is seldom out of his hand. But at the recently concluded evening meal, feeling, no doubt, that after that painful scene in the larder there was nothing to be gained by further abstinence, he had rather let himself go, as it were, made up leeway, and after really immersing himself in one of Anatole's dinners, a man of his sturdy build tends to lose elasticity a bit. During the exposition of my plans for his happiness, a certain animation had crept into his round and round the mulberry bush jamboree of ours, so much so, indeed, that for the last few minutes he might have been a rather oversized greyhound, and a somewhat slimmer electric hare doing their stuff on a circular track for the entertainment of the many-headed. This, it appeared, had taken it out of him a bit, and I was not displeased. I was feeling the strain myself, and welcomed a lull. "'It absolutely beats me why you don't believe it,' I said. "'You know we've been pals for years. You must be aware that, except at the moment when you caused me to do a nosedive into the drone swimming bath, an incident which I'd long since decided to put out of my mind and let the dead past bury its dead about, if you follow what I mean, except on that one occasion, as I say, I have always regarded you with the utmost esteem.' Why, then, if not for the motives I have outlined, should I knock you to Angela? Answer me that. Be very careful. What do you mean, be very careful? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't quite know myself. It was what the magistrate had said to me on the occasion when I stood on the dock as Eustace Plimsoll of the Laburnums, and as it had impressed me a good deal at the time, I just bunged it in now by way of giving the conversation a tone. All right, never mind about being careful then. Just answer me that question. Why, if I had not your interest sincerely at heart, should I have ticked you off as stated? A sharp spasm shook him from base to apex. 
The beetle, which during the recent exchanges had been clinging to his head, hoping for the best, gave it up at this and resigned office. It shot off and was swallowed in the night. Ah, I said, your beetle, I explained. No doubt you are unaware of it, but all this while there's been a beetle of sorts parked on the side of your head. You have now dislodged it. He snorted. Beetles. Not beetles, one beetle only. I like your crust, cried Tuppy, vibrating like one of Gussie's newts during the courting season. Talking of beetles, when all the time you know you're a treacherous sneaking hound. It was a debatable point, of course, why treacherous sneaking hounds should be considered ineligible to talk about beetles, and I dare say a good cross-examining counsel would have made quite a lot of it, but I let it go. That's the second time you've called me that. And, I said firmly, I insist on an explanation. I have told you that I have acted throughout from the best and kindliest motives in roasting you to Angela. It cut me to the quick to have to speak like that, and only the recollection of our lifelong friendship would have made me do it. And now you say you don't believe me, and call me names, for which I am not sure I couldn't have you up before a beacon jury and mulk you in very substantial damages. I should have to consult my solicitor, of course, but it would surprise me very much if an action did not lie. Be reasonable, Tuppy. Suggest another motive I could have had. Just one. I will. Do you think I don't know? You're in love with Angela yourself. What? And you knocked me in order to poison her mind against me and finally remove me from your path. I had never heard anything so absolutely loopy in my life. Why, dash it, I've known Angela since she was so high. You don't fall in love with close relations you've known since they were so high. Besides, isn't there something in the book of rules about a man not marry his cousin? Or am I thinking of grandmothers? Tuppy, my dear old ass, I cried, this is pure banana oil. You've come unscrewed. Oh, yes? Me? In love with Angela? Ha, ha! You can't get out of it with ha-has. She called you darling. I know, and I disapproved. The habit of the younger G of scattering darlings about like birdseed is one that I deprecate. Lax is how I would describe it. You tickled her ankles. In a purely cousinly spirit, it didn't mean a thing. Why, dash it, you must know that in the deeper and truer sense I wouldn't touch Angela with a barge pole. Oh, and why not? Not good enough for you? You misunderstand me, I hasten to reply. When I say I wouldn't touch Angela with a barge pole, I intend merely to convey that my feelings towards her are those of a distant, though cordial, esteem. In other words, you may rest assured that between this young prune and myself there never has been, and never could be, any sentiment warmer and stronger than that of ordinary friendship. I believe it was you who tipped her off that I was in the larder last night, so that she could find me there with that pie, thus damaging my prestige. My dear Tuppy, a Wooster? I was shocked. You think a Wooster would do that? He breathed heavily. Listen, he said. It's no good your standing there arguing. You can't get away from the facts. Somebody stole her from me at Cannes. You told me yourself that she was with you all the time at Cannes, and hardly saw anybody else. You gloated over the mixed bathing, and those moonlight walks you had together. Not gloated, just mentioned them. So now you understand why, as soon as I can get you clear of this damned bench, I am going to tear you limb from limb. Why, they have these bally benches in gardens, said Tuppy discontentedly. There's more than I can see. They only get in the way. He ceased, and, grabbing out, missed me by a hair's breadth. It was a moment for swift thinking, and it is at such moments, as I have already indicated, that Bertram Wooster is at his best. I suddenly remembered the recent misunderstanding with the Bassett, and with a flash of clear vision saw that this was where it was going to come in handy. "'You've got it all wrong, Tuppy,' I said, moving to the left. "'True, I saw a lot of Angela,' but my dealings with her were on a basis from start to finish, 
of the purest and most wholesome camaraderie. I can prove it. During that sojourn in Cannes, my affections were engaged elsewhere. What? Engaged elsewhere, my affections, during that sojourn. I had struck the right note. He stopped sidling. His clutching hand fell to his side. Is that true? Quite official. Who was she? My dear Tuppy, does one bandy a woman's name? One does if one doesn't want one's ruddy head pulled off. I saw that it was a special case. Madeline Bassett, I said. Who? Madeline Bassett. He seemed stunned. You stand there and tell me you were in love with that Bassett disaster? I wouldn't call her that Bassett disaster, Tuppy. Not respectful. Dash being respectful. I want the facts. You deliberately assert that you love that weird God help us? I don't see why you should call her a weird God help us either. A very charming and beautiful girl. Odd in some of her views, perhaps. One does not quite see eye to eye with her in the matter of stars and rabbits. But not a weird God help us. Anyway, you stick to it that you were in love with her? I do. It sounds thin to me, Wooster. Very thin. I saw that it would be necessary to apply the finishing touch. I must ask you to treat this as entirely confidential, Glossop, but I may as well inform you that it was not twenty-four hours since she turned me down. Turned you down? Like a bedspread, in this very garden. Twenty-four hours. Call it twenty-five. So you will readily see that I can't be the chap, if any, who stole Angela from you at Cannes. And I was on the brink of adding that I wouldn't touch Angela with a barge pole when I remembered I had said it already and it hadn't gone frightfully well. I desisted, therefore. My manly frankness seemed to be producing good results. The homicidal glare was dying out of Tuppy's eyes. He had the aspect of a hired assassin who had paused to think things over. I see, he said at length. All right, then. Sorry you were troubled. Don't mention it, old man, I responded courteously. For the first time since the bushes had begun to pour forth glossops, Bertram Wooster could be said to have breathed freely. I don't say I actually came out from behind the bench, but I did let go of it, and with something of the relief which those three chaps in the Old Testament must have experienced after sliding out of the burning fiery furnace, I even groped tenderly for my cigarette case. The next moment a sudden snort made me take my fingers off it as if it had bitten me. I was distressed to note in the old friend a return of the recent frenzy. What the hell did you mean by telling her that I used to be covered with ink when I was a kid? My dear Tuppy, I was almost finickingly careful about my personal cleanliness as a boy. You could have eaten your dinner off me. Quite, but— And all that stuff about having no soul— I'm crawling with soul, and being looked on as an outsider at the drones. But, my dear old chap, I explained that. It was all part of my ruse or scheme. It was, was it? Well, in the future, do me a favor and leave me out of your foul ruses. Just as you say, old boy. All right, then. That's understood. He relapsed into silence standing with folded arms, staring before him rather like a strong, silent man in a novel, when he's just been given the bird by the girl, and is thinking of looking in at the Rocky Mountains and bumping off a few bears. His manifest pippidness excited my compassion, and I ventured a kindly word. I don't suppose you know what opiae de la lettre means, Tuppy, but that's how I don't think you ought to take all that stuff Angela was saying just now too much." He seemed interested. "'What the devil,' he asked, "'are you talking about?' I saw that I should have to make myself clearer. "'Don't take all that guff of hers too literally, old man. You know what girls are like.' "'I do,' he said, with another snort that came straight up from his insteps. "'And I wish I'd never met one.' 
I mean to say it's obvious that she must have spotted you in those bushes and was simply talking to score off you. There you were, I mean, if you follow the psychology, and she saw you, and in that impulsive way girls have, she seized the opportunity of ribbing you a bit. Just told you a few home truths, I mean to say. Home truths? That's right. He snorted once more, causing me to feel rather like royalty receiving a twenty-one-gun salute from the fleet. I can't remember ever having met a better right and left-hand snorter. What do you mean, home truths? I'm not fat. No, no. And what's wrong with the color of my hair? Quite in order, tuppy old man. The hair, I mean. And I'm not a bit thin on top. What the dickens are you grinning about? Not grinning, just smiling slightly. I was conjuring up a sort of vision, if you know what I mean, of you as seen through Angela's eyes. Fat in the middle and thin on top. Rather funny. You think it funny, do you? Not a bit. You'd better not. Quite. It seemed to me that the conversation was becoming difficult again. I wished it could be terminated. And so it was. For at this moment something came shimmering through the laurels in the quite even fall, and I perceived that it was Angela. She was looking sweet and saint-like, and she had a plate of sandwiches in her hand. Ham, I was to discover later. "'If you see Mr. Glossop anywhere, Bertie,' she said, her eyes resting dreamily on Tuppy's façade, "'I wish you would give him these. I'm so afraid he may be hungry, poor fellow. It's nearly ten o'clock, and he hasn't eaten a morsel since dinner. I'll just leave them on this bench.' She pushed off, and it seemed to me that I might as well go with her. "'Nothing to keep me here, I mean. We move towards the house,' and presently from behind us there sounded on the night the splintering crash of a well-kicked plate of ham sandwiches, accompanied by the muffled oaths of a strong man in his wrath. "'How still and peaceful everything is,' said Angela. End of chapter 15「This is a Sunshine was gilding the grounds of Brinkley Court, and the ear detected a marked twittering of birds in the ivy outside the window when I woke next morning to a new day. But there was no corresponding sunshine in Bertram Wooster's soul, and no answering twitter in his heart as he sat up in bed, sipping his cup of strengthening tea. It could not be denied that to Bertram, reviewing the happenings of the previous night, the Tuppy Angela situation seemed more or less to have slipped a cog. With every desire to look for the silver lining, I could not but feel that the rift between these two haughty spirits had now reached such impressive proportions that the task of bridging same would be beyond even my powers. I am a shrewd observer, and there had been something in Tuppy's manner as he booted that plate of ham sandwiches that seemed to tell me that he would not lightly forgive. In these cirques, I deemed it best to shelve their problem for the nonce and turn the mind to the matter of Gussie, which presented a brighter picture. With regard to Gussie, everything was in train. Jeeves's morbid scruples about lacing the chap's orange juice had put me to a good deal of trouble, but I had surmounted every obstacle in the old Wooster way. I had secured an abundance of the necessary spirit, and it was now lying in its flask in the drawer of the dressing-table. I had also ascertained that the jug, duly filled, would be standing on a shelf in the butler's pantry round about the hour of one. To remove it from that shelf, sneak it up to my room, and return it, laced, in good time for the midday meal, would be a task calling, no doubt, for address, but in no sense an exacting one. 
It was with something of the emotions of one preparing a treat for a deserving child that I finished my tea and rolled over for that extra spot of sleep which just makes all the difference when there is man's work to be done and the brain must be kept clear for it. And when I came downstairs an hour or so later I knew how right I had been to formulate this scheme for Gussie's bucking up. I ran into him on the lawn, and I could see at a glance that if ever there was a man who needed a snappy stimulant, it was he. All nature, as I have indicated, was smiling, but not Augustus Finknoddle. He was walking round in circles, muttering something about not proposing to detain us long, but on this auspicious occasion feeling compelled to say a few words. "'Ah, Gussie,' I said, arresting him as he was about to start another lap. "'A lovely morning, is it not?' Even if I had not been aware of it already, I could have divined from the abruptness with which he damned the lovely morning that he was not in merry mood. I addressed myself to the task of bringing the roses back to his cheeks. "'I've got good news for you, Gussie.' He looked at me with a sudden sharp interest. "'Has Market's Nodsbury Grammar School burned down?' "'Not that I'm aware of. Have mumps broken out? Is the place closed on account of measles?' "'No, no.' "'Then what do you mean you've got good news?' I endeavored to soothe. "'You mustn't take it so hard, Gussie. Why worry about a laughably simple job like distributing prizes at a school?' "'Laughably simple, eh?' "'Do you realize I've been sweating for days and haven't been able to think of a thing to say yet?' except that I won't detain them long. You bet I won't detain them long. I've been timing my speech, and it lasts five seconds. What the devil am I to say, Bertie? What do you say when you're distributing prizes? I considered. Once at my private school, I had won a prize for scripture knowledge, so I suppose I ought to have been full of inside stuff. But memory eluded me. Then something emerged from the mists. "'You say the race is not always to the swift.' "'Why?' "'Well, it's a good gag. It generally gets a hand.' "'I mean, why isn't it? Why isn't the race to the swift?' "'Ah, there you have me. But the nibs say it isn't.' "'But what does it mean?' "'I take it it's supposed to console the chaps who haven't won prizes.' "'What's the good of that to me? I'm not worrying about them. It's the ones that have won prizes that I'm worrying about, the little blighters who will come up on that platform. Suppose they make faces at me.' "'They won't.' "'How do you know they won't? It's probably the first thing they'll think of. And even if they don't—' "'Bertie, shall I tell you something?' "'What?' "'I've a good mind to take that tip of yours and have a drink.' I smiled. He little knew about summed up what I was thinking. "'Oh, you'll be all right,' I said. He became fevered again. "'How do you know I'll be all right? I'm sure to blow up in my lines. Tush! Or drop a prize. Tut! Or something. I can feel it in my bones. As sure as I'm standing here, something is going to happen this afternoon which will make everybody laugh themselves sick at me.' I can hear them now, like hyenas. Bertie, hello. Do you remember that kid's school we went to before Eton? Quite. It was there I won my scripture prize. Never mind about your scripture prize. I'm not talking about your scripture prize. Do you recollect the Bosher incident? I did, indeed. It was one of the high spots of my youth. Major General Sir Wilshire Bosher came to distribute the prizes at that school proceeded Gussie in a dull, toneless voice. He dropped a book. He stooped to pick it up, and as he stooped, his trousers split up the back. How we roared! Gussie's face twisted. We did, little swine that we were. Instead of remaining silent and exhibiting a decent sympathy for a gallant officer at a peculiarly embarrassing moment, we howled and yelled with mirth, I loudest of any. That is what will happen to me this afternoon, Bertie. It will be a judgment on me for laughing like that at Major General Sir Wilfred Busher. 
No, no, Gussie, old man, your trousers won't split. How do you know they won't? Better men than me have split their trousers. General Busher was a DSO with a fine record of service on the northwestern front of India, and his trousers split. I shall be a mockery and a scorn. I know it. And you, fully cognizant of what I am in for, come babbling about good news. What news could possibly be good to me at this moment, except the information that bubonic plague had broken out among the scholars of Market Snodsbury Grammar School, and that they were all confined to their beds with spots? The moment had come for me to speak. I laid a hand gently on his shoulder. He brushed it off. I laid it on again. He brushed it off once more. I was endeavoring to lay it on for the third time, when he moved aside and desired, with a certain petulance, to be informed if I thought I was a ruddy osteopath. I found his manner trying, but one has to make allowances. I was telling myself that I should be seeing a very different Gussie after lunch. When I said I had good news, old man, I meant about Madeline Bassett. The febrile gleam died out of his eyes, to be replaced by a look of infinite sadness. You can't have good news about her. I've dished myself there completely. Not at all. I am convinced that if you take another whack at her, all will be well. And keeping it snappy, I related what had passed between the Bassett and myself on the previous night. So, all you have to do is play a return date, and you cannot fail to swing the voting. You are her dream man. He shook his head. No. What? No use. What do you mean? Not a bit of good trying. But I tell you, she said in so many words. It doesn't make any difference. She may have loved me once. Last night will have killed all that. Of course it won't. It will. She despises me now. Not a bit of it. She knows you simply got cold feet. And I should get cold feet if I tried again. It's no good, Bertie. I'm hopeless. And there's the end of it. Fate made me the sort of chap who can't say boo to a goose. It isn't a question of saying boo to a goose. The point doesn't arise at all. It is a simply a matter of, I know, I know, but it's no good. I can't do it. The whole thing is off. I am not going to risk a repetition of last night's fiasco. You talk in a light way of taking another whack at her, but you don't know what it means. You have not been through the experience of starting to ask the girl you love to marry you, and then suddenly finding yourself talking about the plum-like external gills of the newly-born newt. It's not a thing you can do twice. No, I accept my destiny. It's all over. And now, Bertie, like a good chap, shove off. I want to compose my speech. I can't compose my speech with you mucking around. If you're going to continue to muck around, at least give me a couple of stories. The little hellhounds are sure to expect a story or two. Do you know the one about? No good. I don't want any of your off-color stuff from the drone smoking room. I need something clean, something that will be a help to them in their afterlives. Not that I care a damn about their afterlives, except that I hope they'll all choke. I heard a story the other day. I can't quite remember it, but it was about a chap who snored and disturbed the neighbors. And it ended, It was his adenoids that adenoid them. He made a weary gesture. You expect me to work that in, do you, into a speech to be delivered to an audience of boys, every one of whom is probably riddled with adenoids? Damn it, they'd rush the platform. Leave me, Bertie. Push off. That's all I ask you to do. Push off. Ladies and gentlemen, said Gussie in a low, soliloquizing sort of way, I do not propose to detain this auspicious occasion long. It was a thoughtful Wooster who walked away and left him at it. More than ever, I was congratulating myself on having had the sterling good sense to make all my arrangements so that I could press a button and set things moving at an instant's notice. 
Until now, you see, I had rather entertained a sort of hope that when I had revealed to him the Bassett's mental attitude, nature would have done the rest, bracing him up to such an extent that artificial stimulants would not be required. Because, naturally, a chap doesn't want to have to sprint about country houses lugging jugs of orange juice unless it is absolutely essential. But now I saw that I must carry on as planned. The total absence of pep, ginger, and the right spirit which the man had displayed during these conversational exchanges convinced me that the strongest measures would be necessary. Immediately upon leaving him, therefore, I proceeded to the pantry, waited till the butler had removed himself elsewhere, and nipped in and secured the vital jug. A few moments later, after a wary passage of the stairs, I was in my room. And the first thing I saw there was Jeeves, fooling about with trousers. He gave the jug a look which, wrongly as it was to turn out, I diagnosed as censorious. I drew myself up a bit. I intended to have no rot from the fellow. Yes, Jeeves? Sir? You have the air of one about to make a remark, Jeeves. Oh, no, sir. I note that you are in possession of Mr. Finknottle's orange juice. I was merely about to observe that, in my opinion, it would be injudicious to add spirit to it. That is a remark, Jeeves, and it is precisely because I have already attended to the matter, sir. What? Yes, sir, I decided, after all, to acquiesce in your wishes. I stared at the man, astounded. I was deeply moved. Well, I mean, wouldn't any chap who had been going about thinking that the old feudal spirit was dead, and then suddenly found out it wasn't having been deeply moved? Jeeves, I said, I am touched. Thank you, sir. Touched and gratified. Thank you very much, sir. But what caused this change of heart? I chanced to encounter Mr. Finknottle in the garden, sir, while you were still in bed, and we had a brief conversation. And you came away feeling that he needed a bracer? Very much so, sir. His attitude struck me as defeatist. I nodded. I felt the same. Defeatist sums it up to a nicety. Did you tell him his attitude struck you as defeatist? Yes, sir. But it didn't do any good? No, sir. Very well, then, Jeeves, we must act. How much gin did you put in the jug? A liberal tumblerful, sir. Would that be a normal dose for an adult defeatist, do you think? I fancy it should prove adequate, sir. I wonder. We must not spoil the ship for a haperth of tar. I think I'll add just another fluid ounce or so. I would not advocate it, sir. In the case of Lord Brancaster's parrot, you are falling into your old error, Jeeves, of thinking that Gussie is a parrot. Fight against this. I shall add the ounce. Very good, sir. And, by the way, Jeeves, Mr. Finknottle is in the market for bright, clean stories to use in his speech. Do you know any? I know a story about two Irishmen, sir. Pat and Mike? Yes, sir. Who were walking along Broadway? Yes, sir. Just what he wants. Any more? No, sir. Well, every little bit helps. You had better go and tell it to him. Very good, sir. He passed from the room, and I unscrewed the flask and tilted into the jug a generous modicum of its contents. And scarcely had I done so when there came to my ears the sound of footsteps without. I had only just time to shove the jug behind the photograph of Uncle Tom on the mantelpiece before the door opened and in came Gussie, curveting like a circus horse. "'What ho, Bertie,' he said. "'What ho, what ho, what ho, and again, what ho! What a beautiful world this is, Bertie, one of the nicest I ever met!' I stared at him speechless. We Woosters are as quick as lightning, and I saw at once that something had happened. I mean to say, I told you about him walking around in circles. I recorded what passed between us on the lawn, 
and if I portrayed the scene with anything like adequate skill, the picture you will have retained of this Finknoddle would have been that of a nervous wreck, sagging at the knees, green about the gills, and picking feverishly at the lapels of his coat in an ecstasy of craven fear. In a word, defeatist. Gussie, during that interview, had, in fact, exhibited all the earmarks of one licked to a custard. Vastly different was the Gussie who stood before me now. Self-confidence seemed to ooze from the fellow's every pore. His face was flushed, there was a jovial light in his eyes, the lips were parted in a swashbuckling smile, and when, with a genial hand, he sloshed me on the back before I could sidestep, it was as if I had been kicked by a mule. "'Well, Bertie,' he proceeded, as blithely as a linnet without a thing on his mind, "'you will be glad to hear that you were right. Your theory has been tested and proven correct. I feel like a fighting cock.' My brain ceased to reel. I saw all. "'Have you been having a drink?' "'I have, as you advised. Unpleasant stuff, like medicine. Burns your throat, too, and makes one as thirsty as the dickens. How can anyone mop it up as you do, for pleasure beats me. Still, I would be the last to deny that it tunes up the system. I could bite a tiger.' What did you have? Whiskey. At least that was the label on the decanter, and I have no reason to suppose that a woman like your aunt, staunch, true blue British, would deliberately deceive the public. If she labels her decanter's whiskey, then I consider that we know where we are. A whiskey and soda, eh? You couldn't have done better. Soda, said Gussie thoughtfully. I knew there was something I had forgotten. "'Didn't you put any soda in it?' "'It never occurred to me. "'I just nipped into the dining-room and drank out of the decanter. "'How much?' "'Oh, about ten swallows. Twelve, maybe, or fourteen. "'Say sixteen medium-sized gulps. Gosh, I'm thirsty.' "'He moved over to the washstand and drank deeply out of the water-bottle. "'I cast a covert glance at Uncle Tom's photograph behind his back.' For the first time since it had come into my life, I was glad that it was so large. It hid its secret well. If Gussie had caught sight of that jug of orange juice, he would have unquestionably been on to it like a knife. "'Well, I'm glad if you feel braced,' I said. He moved buoyantly from the wash-hand stand and endeavored to slosh me on the back again. Foiled by my nimble footwork, he staggered to the bed and sat down upon it. "'Braced?' Did I say I could bite a tiger? You did. Make it two tigers. I could chew holes in a steel door. What an ass you must have thought me out there in the garden. I see now you are laughing up your sleeve. No, no. Yes, insisted Gussie. That very sleeve, he said, pointing. And I don't blame you. I can't imagine why I'd made all that fuss about a potty job like distributing prizes at a rotten little country grammar school. Can you imagine, Bertie? Exactly. Nor can I imagine. There's simply nothing to it. I just shin up on the platform, drop a few gracious words, hand the little blighters their prizes, and hop down again, admired by all. Not a suggestion of split trousers from start to finish. I mean, why should anybody split his trousers? I can't imagine. Can you imagine? No. Nor can I imagine. I shall be a riot. I know just the sort of stuff that's needed. Simple, manly, optimistic stuff straight from the shoulder. This shoulder, said Gussie, tapping. Why I was so nervous this morning, I can't imagine. For anything simpler than distributing a few footling books to a bunch of grimy-faced kids, I can't imagine. Still, for some reason I can't imagine, I was feeling a little nervous. But now I feel fine. Bertie, fine, 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 and I say this to you as an old friend, because that's what you are, old man, when all the smoke is cleared away, an old friend. I don't think I ever met an older friend. How long have you been an old friend of mine, Bertie? Oh, years and years. Imagine. Though, of course, there must have been a time when you were a new friend. 
Hello, the luncheon gong. Come on, old friend. And rising from the bed like a performing flea, he made for the door. I followed rather pensively. What had occurred was, of course, so much velvet, as you may say. I mean, I had wanted a braced finknoddle. Indeed, all my plans had had a braced finknoddle as their end and aim. But I found myself wondering a little whether the finknoddle now sliding down the banister wasn't, perhaps, a shade too braced. His demeanor seemed to me that of a man who might quite easily throw bread about at lunch. Fortunately, however, the settled gloom of those round him exercised a restraining effect upon him at the table. It would have needed a far more plastered man to have been rollicking at such a gathering. I had told the Bassett that there were aching hearts in Brinkley Court, and now it looked probable that there would shortly be aching tummies. Anatole, I learned, had retired to his bed with a fit of the vapors, and the meal now before us had been cooked by the kitchen maid, as C-3 a performer as ever welded a skillet. This, coming on top of their other troubles, induced in the company a pretty unanimous silence, a solemn stillness, as you might say, which even Gussie did not seem prepared to break. Except, therefore, for one short snatch of song on his part, nothing untoward marked the occasion, and presently we rose, with instructions from Aunt Dahlia to put on festive raiment and be at Market Snodsbury no later than three-thirty, this leaving me ample time to smoke a gasper or two in the shady bower beside the lake, I did so, repairing to my room round about the hour of three. Jeeves was on the job, adding the final polish to the old topper, and I was about to apprise him of the latest developments in the matter of Gussie when he forestalled me by observing that the latter had only just concluded an agreeable visit to the Wooster bedchamber. "'I found Mr. Finknoddle seated here when I arrived to lay out your clothes, sir.' "'Indeed, Jeeves. Gussie was in here, was he?' "'Yes, sir. He left only a few moments ago. He is driving to the school with Mr. and Mrs. Travers in the large car.' "'Did you give him your story of the two Irishmen?' Yes, sir, he laughed heartily. Good. Had you any other contributions for him? I ventured to suggest that he might mention to the young gentleman that education is a drawing out, not a putting in. The late Lord Bancaster was much addicted to presenting prizes at schools, and he invariably employed this dictum. And how did he react to that? He laughed heartily, sir. This surprised you, no doubt. This practically incessant merriment, I mean. Yes, sir. I thought it odd in one who, when you last saw him, was well up in the group A of the defeatists. Yes, sir. There is a ready explanation, Jeeves. Since you last saw him, Gussie has been on a bender. He is as tight as an owl. Indeed, sir. Absolutely. His nerve cracked under the strain, and he sneaked into the dining-room and started mopping the stuff up like a vacuum-cleaner. Whiskey would seem to be what he filled the radiator with. I gather that he used up most of the decanter. Golly, Jeeves, it's lucky he didn't get at that laced orange juice on top of that, what? Extremely, sir. I eyed the jug. Uncle Tom's photograph had fallen into the fender, and it was standing there right out in the open, where Gussie couldn't have helped seeing it. Mercifully, it was empty now. It was a most prudent act on your part, if I may say so, sir, to dispose of the orange juice. I stared at the man. What? Didn't you? No, sir. Jeeves, let us get this clear. Was it not you who threw away that O.J.? No, sir. I assumed when I entered the room and found the pitcher empty that you had done so. We looked at each other, awed. Two minds with but a single thought. I fear very much, sir. So do I, Jeeves. It would seem almost certain, quite certain. Weigh the facts, sift the evidence. The jug was standing on the mantelpiece for all eyes to behold. Gussie had been complaining of thirst. You found him in here, laughing heartily. I think that there can be little doubt, Jeeves, that the entire contents of that jug are at this moment 
reposing on top of the existing cargo in that already brilliantly lit man's interior. Disturbing, Jeeves. Most disturbing, sir. Let us face the position, forcing ourselves to be calm. You inserted in that jug, shall we say, a tumbler full of the right stuff. Fully a tumbler full, sir. And I added of my plenty about the same amount. Yes, sir. And in two shakes of a duck's tail, Gussie, with all that lapping about inside him, will be distributing the prizes at Market Snodsbury Grammar School before an audience of all that is fairest and most refined in the county. Yes, sir. It seems to me, Jeeves, that the ceremony might be one fraught with considerable interest. Yes, sir. What, in your opinion, will the harvest be? One finds it difficult to hazard a conjecture, sir. You mean imagination boggles? Yes, sir. I inspected my imagination. He was right. It boggled. End of chapter 16 When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.